A coward dies a thousand deaths. A soldier dies but once. Welcome to Long Story Short. Today we have sort of a controversial enigma I had difficulty categorizing. Australian-American author and former pornography gossip columnist Luke Ford. Now it might trouble a number of you listeners that I have such a risque personality on board, but nonetheless he is not atypical of a guest in the sense that he, like Janice Humanko or Jesse Lee Peterson, go against the grain of conventional thinking. Luke is an individual that on paper, the entirety of his personal life and career seems to have controversy waiting around the corner. But what attracts me to Luke is something I believe we share, which is a yearning for truth to be put upon the table, even the uncomfortable ones. He now teaches the Alexander Technique in conjunction to lecturing on Christianity and Judaism. Welcome, Luke. Hey, it's great to be here. So the first place I came across you, actually was on DVD ASA's Eroticized Rage episode, which I think is no longer public, correct? I didn't realize that. Interesting. I'll have to see if I can find it. Well, this is the Thursday morning after Thanksgiving. I don't know if your family is politically diverse, but for the most part, being genetically Korean, I am ideologically conservative. Now, of course, I mentioned this because our current political climate, where our candidate took the victor, presuming you are on the Trump train based on the tenure of your Facebook posts. What does Donald Trump symbolize culturally to a man who's explored a lot of transformation in the Western canon? Well, I'll give you an analogy of playing football. No, I love American football. I would never play it. You know, I'd never play tackle football because it's, you know, way too uh, dangerous. But I love watching those mm. who will play tackle football. And uh, to succeed in, in, in football, you have to hit the other guy very hard. And if you hit the other guy very hard, you know, within the rules of the game, mm. uh, you could break his leg. I mean, you could even kill him theoretically, you know, completely within the rules of the game, you can do great damage. So to succeed in football, you have to be a hard man. And the situation that the United States is in and most of the West is in requires very hard choices. You're going to have to hurt some people to protect other people. And I, I agree with Carl Schmidt that the basis of politics is the friend-enemy distinction. And uh, the United States has enemies, and we allow them to live among us. And uh, that's, that's crazy. That's insane. And uh, more than any other politician that I can remember, you know, Donald Trump seems prepared to do the hard things that are required for my team to win. And so just as I root in professional American football for the Dallas Cowboys, now, and I want them to play within the rules of the game, but I want them to win. So, too, I want my team, the United States of America, to win, even if that requires doing very hard things for, to our enemies. You know, I, I take it even a step further, though. The leftist ideology, hence political correctness and social justice, is the greatest threat to both the creative process as a painter and allowance of free market competition amongst our citizenry. I've always felt that. I don't even believe they're well-intentioned. I think under the guise of diversity and multiculturalism, all these things, these identitarian politics, I believe that they're antithetical to the narrative of the West. And when you look at it from a social dynamics position, you see that Islam or the widespread gender fluidity, it's not compatible with Western values and righteous Americanism. The more you identify with being Jewish, or the more you identify with any in-group identity, the more likely you are to have negative feelings about out-groups. So minorities are always going, in general, they're always going to feel resentful and angry at the majority culture. And uh, that's just social identity theory. It applies to Jews, to non-Jews, to Koreans, to blacks, to Muslims. Um, it doesn't apply exactly the same. 
to, to every group. Uh, but these these are the, the basics of, uh, of identity. And uh, I, I've moved in the last few years in, in my thinking so that while I am a man of faith and I am a convert to Orthodox Judaism, mm -hmm. faith, religious faith in particular, is always by definition contains a huge element of subjectivity. If my faith was objectively revealed, now everyone would be an Orthodox Jew. Obviously, that's not true. So when I look at the world now, if you take away faith, there are no good guys or bad guys. You have to have faith to to believe that one group is good and another group is bad. But when you take away faith, you have a world where there are different forms of life competing for survival. And there are no good guys and bad guys. And uh, we're just all competing. And uh, I find that, you know, really helpful. It's not that for me that the left is bad anymore. It's just, it's a different form of life. It's a different way of thinking. And it's competing with my group and, and the way that uh, my group thinks and operates and we're struggling for scarce resources we're struggling for survival and they are the enemy they're not the enemy being the enemy doesn't make them bad or evil because they're not bad or evil and my group is not good we're just all competing just like uh when you know lions and tigers and uh, you know deer are all forced together in the same place they're all competing for water for uh, you know for food and for territory and i find that perspective the most helpful to just objectively understanding the world so it's not so much that you know everybody has to think in terms of we're the good guys and they're the bad guys but if i can step away from that it's not that objectively you know donald trump and his supporters are the good guys it's just that this is one form of life competing against other forms of life such as the left and uh, I want my form of life to do well. I'll speak as an artist as well, because my angle is to comment on the aesthetic presentation and cultural tone of the policies pronounced. Let me tell you, as a DC-based artist, living amongst the radical left here in Obama's territory, the presentation, right? I continually, yeah. I'm, I'm disappointed by the distasteful hypocrisy taking its most deleterious form in these Trump protests. I mean, I've, I've even ceased communication with a number of my liberal peers who no longer can afford to have a conversation with an opposing view, you know? Well, yeah, but you see, it's not, we experience the world differently. I, I think that the, the biological basis for politics is very profound. Yes, like I agree. How much, how much freedom of choice do you think that you have and your friends have in, in our political choices? I know for me, it's fairly limited. Like, I am just biologically programmed towards a right-wing perspective mm -hmm. and i know that much of the world you know is biologically programmed towards a left-wing perspective and we just experience the world very differently i'll give you an example you know i once had a roommate who wanted to put up a um kind of a you know a dark you know kind of zombie picture in uh, like the the entryway and uh, you know every time i'd come in i'd see this kind of creepy picture and as someone who is right-wing I have a much stronger disgust reaction than someone who's left wing. So I was like really disgusted by that picture. And even though I try to be the most, you know, tolerant, easygoing, you know, roommate that one could be, you know, eventually I asked, you know, could we take that picture down? It disturbs me because I have a strong disgust reaction. Um, and that's just, I think is primarily biological. And so your friends who are protesting or your friends who are having what seem like hypocritical, views i think they are you know primarily biologically programmed and then the rest of the program is you know upbringing and and their culture you know everything is genes and culture um they're programmed to experience the world in a different way than you and i this is redundant of course you want our you want the right to win yes when we're talking about the left versus right they're thinking the way they think but i'm speaking from a social dynamics perspective when you look at sociologists and evolutionary psychologists, there are lifestyles that are more lucrative towards maintenance and continuation of a species. And yes. And th the leftist thinking is, again, antithetical to this form of thinking. And, you know, Thomas Sowell, he once said that much of the social history of the Western world over the past three decades has involved replacing what worked 
with what sounded good. Yeah. And that's yeah. my problem. Um, you know, I, I love Dr. Thomas Sowell. He's a, he's a, he is a giant. Uh, he's uh, one of the reasons I got into <laughs> economics. Um, yeah, Trey Gowdy and Thomas him. L. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a giant, but um, uh, I just, you know, they are leftists experience the world differently than us, and so they don't have, they don't. Most people don't have much choice in their political reactions, so that's why I try to never get angry about politics. I try to never argue politics, you know, because, you know, I understand that both of us are, are programmed <laughs> and, that, you know, there is some degree of freedom of choice, but uh, I think it's pretty limited. Luke, are you familiar with Stefan Molyneux? Yes. R versus K selection theory. That is what you're presumably talking about right now, correct? Well, it, that's one um, manifestation. Like, I'm, I'm talking... You know, I think in, in uh, human conflict, a great way to uh, look at it is, you know, take it outside of the human realm and, and, you know, what happens in the animal kingdom. So, for instance, there's invasive species. There's, there's a guest. So I'm from Australia and uh, I'm fascinated by the concept of invasive species. And there's a great uh, entry on it on Wikipedia. And I think this really applies to, to human conflicts and immigration as well. So when Australia brought in rabbits, it had a devastating effect on the native ecology. So you can bring in animals that will not have a devastating effect on the native ecology, but some animals will. So for instance, you know, the more cats you have running wild, you know, the more birds are going to get killed. So so too with uh, you know human beings and, and conflict we don't you know all interact in in identical ways and our case selection theory is just you know it's just fascinating there are two basic forms of uh, reproductive evolutionary strategies uh, one form uh, say the R form of uh, reproductive strategy is to have a reduced number of offspring with greater parental involvement which is kind of uh, the uh, East Asian model. That's K. Oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, I'm and I'm definitely a K selection guy myself. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very monogamous. Um, and then <laughs> uh, then there's you know the R selection strategy, which is uh, to have a ton of offspring and to not put much parental investment into them. I mean, this is a fascinating topic we're, we're touching upon, which is that ideology, in a way, is gene warfare. This political turmoil between the right and the left, in many ways it is against people who are more genetically R-selection versus K. And yeah. you will find that, because look at groups like <clears throat> like Black Lives Matter. You just look at their promiscuous practices as well. Primarily a homosexual movement. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's black, you know, lesbians. gay intellectuals in college. Black lesbians, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're almost the absolute contrast of what you previously were, correct? You were, right. you know, you practice Judaism right. with full commitment. Right. Would you say that you went from the left to the right? Well, I, there is a part of me that kind of likes to live life as a performance art or as an acting exercise. So uh, when I was in college, I had some very eloquent professors and I decided to just go... 100% into the left leftist perspective to just embrace Marxism mm. and uh, without making any behavioral uh, actions towards it like I did not join any groups was not interested in joining any groups you know would never have marched or anything it was you know I, I wanted to like experience Marxism I just wanted to throw myself into it and see where it takes me and I, I've done this with a lot of points of view. And so for several years, I just kind of, you know, I just tell everyone, oh, I'm an atheistic communist. Um, and and I just just went with that for about uh, for about three years. And then, you know, I realized it was just totally ridiculous. I just couldn't, oh, yeah. I, you know, I couldn't keep it up. Anymore. It ameliorates any you responsibility. Know, I'm sorry? It, it just ameliorates any, like, sense of personal accountability. You know, it's psychologically absurd. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, 
but you know, I ran with it because I, I wanted to experience it, and and then I, uh, you know, and then I then I let it go. And you know, my basic orientation has always been right wing, except for the that you know probably two to three year flirtation uh, with with Marxism. But I'm I think because I grew up in foster care, uh, you know, ages one to five, that I've always been able to fit in with you know wildly divergent uh, ways of life like I can put myself in completely you know incompatible places um, and 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 pull it off so I was I was interested into what I would find going into the, the pornography industry as, as you know someone who's very much an outsider and someone who's very you know traditional in uh, his, his values and his orientation to life and I think it was that combination that created the, the the power of my uh, reportage because I was not I was not uh, one with the with the porn industry I always had that wow. outside perspective and it's also the same sort of thing that I can bring to my writings on Jewish life because you know I'm a convert to Orthodox Judaism you know I lived my first 27 years as a, as a Gentile and so because I have experience in both worlds sure. Um, I can see, I can see things that people who don't have that experience don't see. It's like a meat eater around vegans. <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah. you, you might you yeah. might be estranged, but the very fact that you're the strange makes you actually interesting. Again, yeah. when you when you look past the the feeling of it, the social dynamic of the fact that oh, this actually makes me pivotally interesting. Now, uh, it gives me the possibility of. Uh... Uh, of being able to say something interesting. Now, for most people, it would just drive them insane. They, they simply would not be able to pull it off. And so you have to you have, to have a high IQ, and and then... Now that you're a Jew, of course you have a high IQ, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, now, you know, this is primarily an education podcast. Moving on from the roller coaster of this candidacy... Uh, Tell me a little bit about the Alexander Technique for those who've never heard of it. And, and let me say, I'm familiar with it through the motto of allowing the body to move naturally, correct? Yeah. So let me tell you how I discovered it. I was reading a book by Neil Strauss on how to pick up women. Yeah. <laughs> so body language was the key here. Well, he wrote the famous book called The Game Inside I know, the Secret Society of Pickup Artists. And then he wrote a follow-up book called The Rules of the Game, which was kind of you know, how you could implement it. And as I was reading the follow-up book, uh, I think I might, shortly after my 41st birthday, it had one sentence on the Alexander Technique. It said, uh, you know, it said that you know, women are attracted to men with good posture and that the Alexander Technique can help with posture and it has many other health benefits, including with voice. And that one sentence just really grab my attention because I've had a history of voice problems. I mm. used to work in radio and the more anxious I got about my voice, the worse it sounded. And eventually I just quit radio because, you know, it sounded like I was drowning on air. Wow. You know, I'd, I'd get closer and closer to the microphone because I wasn't able to project my voice. And you could hear the saliva in my mouth as I was trying to read the news. And it was just complete humiliation, mm. also because my father is a very accomplished public speaker, and I could never understand what he was trying to teach me about voice production and projection. So this is like a wound in my psyche that goes back decades. And so when I read that the Alexander Technique could help with posture, which has always been a problem for me, and when I heard that it could help with voice and other related health problems, I was immediately... Uh, interested because if you're a man you know a man can hear one sentence and it can change his life because men tend to be to be rational mm -hmm. so I immediately you know, purchased or checked out books on the library uh, checked out videos from the library and then I got a credit card offer it said pay no interest for 18 months and so I didn't have any money but I went and started purchasing uh, Alexander Technique lessons at $75 a lesson and uh, I, I from the very first lesson I, I felt an immediate release of unnecessary body tension and then about 15 lessons in 
I was telling my teacher how this was changing my life. And she said, well, maybe you'd like to train to be a teacher. And I said, yes. And so I then enrolled for three years of teacher training, which is uh, fairly rigorous. It's three hours a day, five days a week, uh, 36 weeks a year. So it's it's a lot of training. But for a one-sentence summary of the Alexander Technique, the Alexander Technique is a way of noticing how we respond to stimuli and then letting go of those responses that don't serve you. So, for example, most people react to stimuli with some version of the fight or flight reflex, which is where the the face juts forward, the head rotates back, compressing the neck, and the, and the shoulders rise up and tighten. And so that's how most people react to a stimuli. And they re- react like that to some degree, as they go through life, particularly as they age, so that you'll notice that when eight-year-old kids are running around, they've got beautiful posture, but often by the time they're 16, their posture's wrecked because the more time we spend sitting in chairs, generally speaking, uh, the more it destroys our posture. So if you ever see video of people mm. who come from cultures where they don't have chairs, they move beautifully. But for the, for the average person, their posture's usually wrecked by the time they're in their 20s, and particularly men, uh, usually have worse posture than women because men have more of the uh, potential to kind of live outside of their bodies, you know, live in abstract uh, thinking or concerns. Uh, so men in particular uh, more risk oriented. sit a lot. Would, I'm sorry? Would you say it's more risk-oriented? To, to yeah, your posture, yeah, men, just to be a man. But it's the, it's the abstract thinking which tends to... Uh, uh, detach men from their bodies. Mm. So men write sim- classical music symphonies. Women don't write classical mu- music symphonies oh, because wow. only men have the capacity of living in such an you know, abstract world. But the price of living in this abstract world is that you grow out of touch with your body and uh, and you may you know misuse yourself in, in profound ways that do uh, great, great harm. So I usually find that men have much worse posture than women. It's, but to me, the more interesting point of this, which is what you're touching upon, it's almost as if the body holds psychological holding patterns, sort of like sort of like dynamic meditation or bioenergetics or the Feldenkrais method. All these things that that have been known for so long, but are just recently being exposed in a mainstream fashion. Yeah. So, I mean, the happier you are, the more likely you are to be buoyant. You know, the more likely you are to be up and the more depressed you are, the more likely you're going to be physically depressed and compressed. So, for instance, I go to a lot of 12-step programs and when I walk into a room, you know, I can immediately tell usually who's in recovery because they're up, they're buoyant. And the people who are very much in the throes of their addiction, they're pulled down, they're compressed, they're depressed both in their you know psyche and in their bodies because whatever's going to go on, in your body is going to go on in your thinking. So if you're very tight and compressed in your body, you're going to be tight and compressed in your thinking and in your emotions. Mm. If you're free and open and happy in your thinking and your emotions, you're going to be free, open and flowing in your body more likely. And you know, if you're very emotionally constipated and restricted, you're likely to be physically, you know, restricted as well as well as mentally restricted because you know our thinking and our emotions all come are all part of our body. Our thinking is not separate from our body. And so whatever's going on in our body is going to affect our thinking. Whatever's going on in our thinking is going to affect our body. So tell me, are you doing any writing now? Yeah, I, I write on my blog, uh, lookforward.net, uh, almost every day. And uh, I've been you know, chronicling the, the Trump campaign and you know Trump's America for the past 18 months. I've been very... You know, passionately uh, behind Donald Trump since uh, since August of uh, 2015, since August 21 of 2015, when I saw him at a live rally at Mobile, Alabama, and I just got the chills by what was mm. going on. It was it was a Friday afternoon. I remember, you know, I was at home and I'd started reading articles in the previous few weeks saying that you know Donald Trump may be onto something. And I was I kind of opening my mind to that possibility, and I never you know, spent any time watching him. And then, uh, from the Drudge Report, 
you know, at, at length as probably the, the main story, you know, Donald Trump was going to hold a big rally in Mobile, Alabama. And so before this, I'd never watched any, you know, very few political speeches because I just don't care for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I clicked the link and, and I felt this sense of excitement. It, you know, it showed Donald Trump's, you know, plane landing. And, and and then it showed the crowd of, you know, 10, 20,000 people. And then it showed, you know, his car you know, making its way to the stadium. And then it showed the introductory speakers. And then it showed Donald Trump get up to speak. And then he said, very early on in his speech, he says, I believe very much in the power of genetics. Wow. <laughs> I was just sold. Yes, yes. He, he is an unabashed believer in eugenics and and i was like yes oh my god this guy is into hbd like he's not an intellectual but human biodiversity he recognizes human biodiversity he recognizes the power of genetics oh my god this is fantastic and from that moment on i was so the next day i went to synagogue and was telling people i think donald j trump's going to be the next president of the united states and everyone just mocked me and laughed at me you know we're all we're like animals in many ways we're all competing for survival and we're all competing often against each other for scarce resources so what's good for koreans is often you know not good for the chinese or the japanese or you know white americans or black americans or like there are times that we have things in common but there are also going to be times when you know we're in conflict but i do know one thing two groups never have identical interests all the time if you you know groups will always have you know some diverging of, of interests so uh, i expect you know minorities to generally tend to, to vote with the, the co- coalition of disaffected, you know, angry, um, you know, fringes, which is the Democratic Party. You know, in my opinion, from the nature and nurture thing, when you know how people say it's 50-50, I think it's 70-30. I think it's mm-hmm. primarily nature. That's my opinion. Yeah. Having said that, I do focus on the 30 because what we were talking about, things you cannot change, it's the imprinting. It's, it's the biological roadmap. Yeah. But I, things that you can change is why you discussed in the first place. So I talk about the 30%. And the 30% is more about values and, idea, and you know, in, in a way, ideological subversion. That's what I yeah. focus on. In that sense, I don't use the terminology of white identity when speaking of Western values. Because there are qualities that permeate onto other cultures. Are, that are not just general, it's more universal. They're things that other cultures agree upon, which is why so many people come here legally. The moment you speak of it as white identity... The blacks, the Jews, the Asians, of course they're not going to understand right-wing Jew like you or right-wing Korean like me. They're going to look at us yeah. as being bigoted out of this self-granting illusionary moral high ground, you know? <laughs> so so I, I don't really, I, I, I look at it as the supremacy of Western values. Yeah, that's a divide on, on the alt-right. There's kind of the alt-right, which is racial, and there's the alt-West, you know, which is, That's right. you know, believes in, in Western, Western values. Are you an alt writer? So, yeah, I consider myself Interesting. On, on, on the, on, <laughs> on the old right. Uh, so for me, what's most important is what is true. And that doesn't mean that I need to talk about what is true over what is comfortable, you know, in every social interaction. Um, but I think, uh, Truth is, is most important. And so I think that generally speaking, the more uh, racially homogenous a state, uh, the stronger it is. And so that, you know, that statement has very uncomfortable implications for me uh, as a Jew, because uh, when I look at, at Jewish history in the West, it's very rare that Jewish strength and white cohesion go together. Instead, they're basically opposite. So the stronger Jews are, the less cohesive whites are. The more cohesive whites are, the weaker Jews are. Or another way of looking at it is the stronger Christianity is, usually the weaker Jews are. You know, the more vulnerable Jews are in the West. And the stronger and more cohesive Jews are, the weaker Christianity is. 
So it would be nice <laughs> if, if we would all, you know, just you know, grow stronger together. But I just don't see any historical uh, basis for, for saying that, uh, you know, that Jewish strength and Christian strength and white strength goes together. Instead, they seem to be pretty much inversely related. You know what? That's kind of the same um, bind I am in. Because one of the psychological positions and implications of being a conservative, a liberal will look at history and say, oh, well, that's something we have to transcend. That's the point of it. Us, we look at it and say, we yeah. have to learn from history. That's the point. And it's strange because that very position is one that we have pride in, but in the same breath, makes it difficult when there is a scarcity, scarcity of evidence. Think uh, it's a very uncomfortable truth because, as, as you know, as a convert to Orthodox Judaism, I, I, it's more comfortable for me to only see my group in, in a positive light and to think that we only, that our only effect on other people is to be a benefit. But that is not. <laughs> there's that's not where the facts are. Mm -hmm, facts mm -hmm. are that all groups are constantly competing, and that as Christianity gets stronger. You know, often Jews are placed in a much more vulnerable position, and when Jews get stronger, you know, it's usually at the expense of a cohesive uh, Christianity. Mm. So, um, mm. you know, I want to face what's true, and 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 you know, struggle with that rather than uh, uh, you know advocate things that are comfortable and and socially acceptable, but you know, not pleasing. You know, for instance. Uh, the United States had a Chinese Exclusion Act, um, particularly you know, in California, and against uh, Chinese, against Japanese, um, and Australia's had the same thing. Australia had basically a white Australian policy um, until about 1972, and so the benefit of that was, you know, whites benefited from that. They they developed a more cohesive, you know, homogenous state where they were able to keep up uh, you know good wages for you know for, for white working people so since the end of that exclusion you know Australia's taken in a lot more Asians so now Australia's 13 percent Asian so what Australia's done now is it has imported its master race because on average East Asians have at least five IQ points on your average you know white person um, East Asians have more family solidarity, they're more cohesive, they're better educated, um, they earn more money. And uh, so by bringing Asians into Australia or by bringing Asians into America, you know, America and Australia are importing their, their master class because on average, East Asians are smarter, harder working, and uh, will you know, become increasingly powerful. So. You know, is it is it a good thing for Australia to or for the United States to to bring in more Asians or more Jews? You know, everything I just said applies to Jews. Yes. And uh, it, you and I are the bad guys here, in a way. You know, wink, wink. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I yeah, mean, no, but, you know, obviously there are no good guys or bad guys. I'm just but kidding. The exclusion yeah. of Asians and Jews work, you know, to the benefit of whites, probably <laughs> in the United States and Australia. I'm not an expert, but it just seems on face value. So it was bad for Asians who were excluded, bad for Jews who were excluded, and probably good for the, for the natives. So just like with animals, you know, when you bring in an invasive species, it can have, you know, it can devastate the, the native uh, wildlife. And so when you bring in immigrants, it can devastate, you know, native, uh, the natives who are, who are there. So, I guess the question here would be, um, what is more important to you, truth or freedom? And then the second question is, unity or diversity? What that entails to me, does diversity increase or decrease social cohesion? I think it's obvious that it decreases social cohesion. And, and that's the I mean, elephant in the room that we're not supposed to talk about, Mr. Ford. <laughs> right, I mean, it's just, it's just so obvious. Now, we, we often, you know, particularly higher IQ people, can deal better with diversity 
um, than average and lower IQ people. And so because, say, you and I have had many wonderful experiences with diversity, for instance, I've had, you know, Asian girlfriends, that, you know, they were wonderful. I've had, like, times of, you know, absolute raging yellow fever. Where I was just so <laughs> in love with the Asian community and with the, you know, Asians that I knew. I just, like, you know, venerated them so much. And, you know, you've probably had a lot of positive experiences with, you know, with white people. Um, I almost exclusively I, only date European women, actually. Okay, so you've had these wonderful experiences with, you know, European women. I've had wonderful experiences, you know, with Asian women. I've had wonderful experiences with Asians in general. Um, my acupuncturist is Asian. You know, I just, you know, love my acupuncturist. Um, you know, I love my Asian friends. But we can't, we can't. You know, that's anecdotal, you know, and that's, you know, for, for higher IQ people, in general, diversity destroys social cohesion. In general, there's a evolutionary psychologist, uh, Satoshi Kanazawa, and he has, yeah, I love that. oh, he, he's, he's also a troublemaker like us, <laughs> and yes. he has this idea that um, the reason why diversity has an attraction is because it's evolutionary novel, but in the same breath, there is a risk-benefit ratio that we need to consider. And my question is, I do think we could have diversity to a point, but I do think in many ways, if the West loses a lot of its white people, if the white population keeps going down, just speaking sociologically, looking at it from a bird's eye view, there can be some detrimental effects. Yeah, let me ask you um, a tough question, uh, because I was listening to you know, leading perhaps the leading white nationalist thinker, Greg Johnson, of Countercurrents. And uh, I think the man is just a, an absolute intellectual giant. And uh, he was interviewed on why he doesn't want Asians in a, in a, white, in a white state. Mm -hmm. He says, because Asians have a shame culture rather than a guilt culture. So that when your average white person does something wrong, he feels guilty. But he... As, as I recall Greg putting it, but for Asians, it's much more about whether or not you get caught. Um, and so when the, the, the Korean airliner had that little crash in San Francisco, uh, the junior pilot knew that the plane was too low to land. But because of his culture, he didn't want to say anything to the senior pilot, you know, hey, we're in danger, um, because it would be a shameful thing and uh also with say you know cheating on on tests and like gaming the you know educational system um you know obviously whites cheat blacks cheat but but is there is there like a, an ethnic difference in attitude towards um uh cheating whereby you know in a in a guilt culture perhaps you know perhaps you know europeans are less likely to to game an educational system where, according to Greg Johnson, you know, Asians would be more likely to have, you know, fewer compunctions about trying to game a system as long as they didn't get caught or shamed. From a collective perspective, when I was in high school, I had my best friend was a white. The one difference that I always saw in terms of the differences of parenting, his parents' motto was, you tried your best, so that's the best you can do. So you should be proud of that you tried. Asian yeah, culture, yeah. Asian culture is more. If you're not gonna be the best, then don't do it at all. And in the long yeah. term, that isn't necessarily the most sufficient and productive method of working, because that yeah. will ostracize a lot of people from becoming resilient. So sometimes it can be a yeah. dangerous thing. Now, having said that, collectively as a unit, that's also why when you look at Asian history, we've produced amazing civilizations. Again, we're talking about risk-benefit ratio here. Yeah. It, it is a very cruel, the genealogy of how we developed. It's, we didn't have as many access to resources, which is why we're so conservative in the first place. So it does have like a, there's a scarcity, so you cannot ruin this because we will lose our nourishment. So let me just read to you what Greg Johnson, I found it, what he said, and, and just get your reaction. So that's about three paragraphs here. Yes. So he says, e even if no one sees us whites doing something wrong, we feel bad about it. In shame cultures, if you are caught, that is bad. You lose face. That is bad. But if you get away with it, they, meaning Asians, are comfortable with that. 
So shame culture and saving face encourages them to behave in ways that would make us feel guilty. Shame culture encourages a culture of lying and fakery. You can't have a culture of lying and fakery and build a white civilization, which is a high-trust civilization, which is what makes it possible for a large number of white people to interact and create scalable institutions because we are highly trustworthy and we have internalized a sense of this ethic of guilt and being trustworthy. We tell the truth. We perform our jobs without needing bribes. So China is a shame culture, which means it is a low-trust culture. People lie all the time, especially to people higher up in the social hierarchy. When you have a tiny clique running a society, 1.4 billion people at the top are often cut off from reality. So final paragraph. In our high-trust society, we have to exclude free riders, people like Jews and Asians, who will exploit our ethos to rise to positions of wealth and power, that they hollow out our society by introducing double-dealing and low-trust behavior patterns. Uh, what do you think of that? No matter what. You must win. Yeah. You must win. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have that view a lot. Like, there's times when there's something facing me, whatever it is. If you're going to do it, do it. It produces sufficient results, but it does create a uh, contextual milieu that does make it hard to be as nurturing. The way I was it's not raised, and, and all my white friends were raised, is just as your white friend was raised. Like, just do your best. And there was never an excuse for cheating. It was like my whole community regarded as wrong. That doesn't mean none of us ever cheated. You know, obviously we would do it, but none of us boasted about it. You know, we, if we did it, we kept it quiet and we felt guilty about it. So the way that I was raised as a white person and all my white friends was raised, you just you do your best, but there's never an excuse for cheating. And so... It, that's, you know, it's a different mentality. Like, let's say, you know, the SAT. Like, my friends and I didn't do any special preparation for the SAT. It was kind of thought of as, you know, not, you know, just, just don't do that. Mm -hmm. But my Asian friends, you know, all go to these, like, SAT preparation courses. You know, they all, you know. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a different mentality. And uh, it, I must win. You know, whatever they need to do to game the system or whatever they need to do to, you know, get ahead and, and do what is best for their family, you know, they will do it. While as the white way I was raised is you just, you know, you do your best, and uh, but, you know, you don't cheat. I'm taking it to an extreme. Don't take this literally, but I'm saying taking it to its logical extremity. Cheating is definitely frowned upon. It's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Yeah, and in, in the way I was raised, it's better to be poor and innocent. I'm uh, Korean-American, too. I mean, in terms of that 30%, this is why I don't have that trigger to being offended about that. Like, it's very Mongolian where it's like we have a pride and sort of just no matter what, we're going to get what we want to get because we're just going to be gangsters. There's a part of that. Yeah. And, That's why we yeah, gamble and, and, so and, much. Yeah, I think this is all primarily a product of evolution, like whites evolved in Northern Europe where, um, you know, they lived farther apart for um, ecological reasons than, than Asians in Northeast Asia. And so your reputation was more important than kinship ties. Mm -hmm. Like if you were ever known as not an honest person, you were finished in a, in a winter. You know, you, you would, people wouldn't help you. You'd be ostracized. Your reputation of being an upstanding person was the most important thing. While for East Asians and for Jews and, and people from you know, the Middle East, kinship ties are more important than you know your reputation for being an honest person. Yeah. So I think we, we've the peoples have evolved differently. In a nutshell, if I had to summarize all this, like if you guys if you guys simply create something. And then, and then you let us get a hold on to it for, like, a generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's really fun. Well, like, every every group has, has strengths and weaknesses. There was a, an American football player who, who got into great trouble, Reggie White, for, for saying this. He said, you know, Indians are good at tracking, and, you know, white people are good at making money, and blacks have special gifts with spirituality and with dancing. Athletics and, and rhythm. Yeah, athletics. But, but you know, it's true. Like, uh Basically, Phil Rushton, in his book *Race, Evolution, and Behavior*, you know, points out that the rule of threes that on virtually every life category, 
you'll have East Asians on one end, blacks on the other end, whites in the middle, but being closer towards East Asians. So on average, East Asians have a higher IQ than whites, you know, by at least five percentage points. It's very significant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, throughout most of history, you know, East Asians have been more prosperous than whites. The only reason that the last 600 years, whites, you know, like Europe, have been more prosperous than East Asians is because of the Black Death, because that killed the least intelligent whites and it promoted assortative mating so that the whites who survived, you know, the higher IQ ones mated with other higher IQ whites. And uh, according to Phil Russian, that's the reason that the whites have, have been more prosperous. But now we mm. see, you know, going back to the historical norm, that East Asians are increasingly more prosperous than whites because East Asians have higher IQ. They have more uh, family uh, solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, they screw around less. They have fewer STDs. They live longer. You know, they live healthier uh, than whites. And in turn, whites, you know, live longer, have higher IQ than blacks. You know, but on the other hand, there are categories like Asians in general. They don't develop muscularly as much as whites who don't develop, you know, muscular definition yes. in general as much as blacks. Getting into dicey territory again. The higher testosterone is is in the black community. Yeah. And then the yeah. lower end is in the Asian community. And I think that the reason why white people tend to create and produce the most inventiveness is because yeah. is the, the ones who have the high intelligence end but also have the testosterone to have the risk-taking notion yeah. of being creative. Now, I will say that whenever I meet a Asian peer of mine, the first thing I tell them to do is to lift weights. Mm -hmm. My paintings are stronger than anybody in this yeah. area for the most part. You know? Um, I, yeah. I had, a, I had a white friend say to me the other day, you know, why are Asians so inscrutable? And I said to him, best way to understand the differences between the races is the degree of inhibition. Asians, meaning East Asians, are more inhibited than whites, who are in turn more inhibited than blacks. So blacks are the least inhibited, so that's why they're so good at athletics, at, you know, split-second decision-making in basketball or football or in dance or, you know, these kind of performance modes. But with being less inhibited, you're also going to commit more crimes. Exactly. You know, you're gonna, you know, high testosterone, low IQ is, is the sure equation for high crime. If we can maintain testosterone... You're speaking of eugenics. If we can ma maintain the testosterone while in increasing our civility in the same breath, I mean, look at the golden age of the West. To keep our testosterone high and yeah. while, while still increasing our civility and our culture, yeah. then, yeah. and hopefully, look, I don't know as much about the alt-right. The, the best reading I've heard about it is uh, Milo Yiannopoulos. He's the best reading I had giving a fair trial for the alt-right how would you define the alt-right uh, i would <laughs> this would be Big a question. controversial definition but really the alt-right is a gateway drug to white nationalism mm. so the alt-right you know is a big tent you know one of I'm the not a part of it. definitions <laughs> of it is that race is real you know, that race, you know, means something. But anyone can join the alt-right. You know, Jews can join the alt-right. Um, you know, Asians can join the alt-right. But it, it's, it's basic uh, is that, you know, races are real, that uh, people have different abilities, that uh, different races will produce different civilizations. Um, and uh, you know, It's so funny because Asians have been saying this for... Asians have been saying this forever now, but the moment a white right. person says well, it, the moment a white person says it, it's 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 bigoted and and racist and all yeah. this. Because if that's what the alt right is, then Asians have been alt rights in this country. We're always like, oh, we need to find a person with similar values who has a job and all this stuff, which is all true. The first thing an Asian parent will tell their kid is find somebody who's genetically compatible. Yeah, that's the first thing. Yeah. That's the first thing I was told. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and it makes sense. It's the first thing you're told as a Jew, you know, you marry a Jew. You know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, also, the alt right is uh, very skeptical of democracy. Huh. So, so it's skeptical of egalitarianism and it's skeptical of 
democracy. But really, the alt-right is a gateway drug, you know, for particularly towards ethno-nationalism. Interesting. So, so ethno-nationalism and... Well, ethno-nationalism meaning, you know, Korean nationalism, uh, Japanese nationalism, oh. white nationalism, Jewish nationalism. You know, ethno-nationalism is the destination. And once you go to ethno-nationalism, mm. you don't leave. You don't then become a libertarian or a liberal. Like, once you go alt-right and, uh, you know, and become an ethno-nationalist, that's the destination drug. You don't go from there to anywhere else. I was hoping it was going to be about Americanism. <laughs> Like American nationalism, because then I could be uh, on board, you know. In a super, that in a um, superficial in way, the superficial outside respectable um, thing, yeah, you know. It's okay, well, I'm done all writer. <laughs> Realize the the situation that we have is very unnatural. You don't find in nature two subspecies living in the same place. One subspecies always drives out or destroys and wipes out the other subspecies. So the races are different subspecies. So it's very unnatural to have us all you know, living together in peace. The natural thing is for one to drive out the others. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the inherent uh, natural uh, dynamic um, is to ha- at least have you know, one, one race in a particular locale ruling. And that if you're going, if you're not of that race and you want to live there, you have to abide by, you know, that race's uh, norms of, of behavior. I, I so think eventually I think, it would be the two high, it would be the Jews versus the Asians. And the Asians would win. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, the thing is, um, Genghis force does count for something. Force counts for something. And so if the, if the Goyim, if the, if the whites, you know, realize that they have, group interests, that they have racial interests that are as real as, you know, Jewish, Jew, Jewish interests are for Jews and Asian interests are for Asians, you know, they, it would be irrational of them not to use force to assert their racial interests. Yeah. And so enough 100 IQ whites, you know, using force, if they find numerically superior, can drive out higher IQ minorities. <laughs> no, it's not comfortable what I'm saying, but to the best of my uh, ability, this is as true as I've been able to find through my 50 mm. years of, of living. You know, it'd be unhealthy for a majority to tolerate minorities that were acting against the majority's interests. Um. I was talking to a, to a Jewish lawyer the other day, and he said, you know, I found out in my third year of law school that there was this know Irish group of you know anti-semites in my in my law school and I said yeah it'd be unhealthy if they weren't and he said what do you mean I said because we're all competing you know it's it would be unhealthy for non-jews not to have some negative feelings about Jews just as it would be unhealthy for Jews not to have some negative feelings about non-jews because we're all competing and we all experience the world differently. And, you know, what's good for my group is often bad for other groups. What does the alt-right ultimately want for this country? Or as Jared Taylor says, 70% white? The alt-right is a gateway drug. The alt-right is a euphemism for a movement that is, in America, that is white nationalist, anti-Semitic, racist, and xenophobic. So the alt-right is a gateway drug even though most people in the alt right may not understand this, for a dominantly white America. So whether that means an America that's 90% white, 80% white, 95% white, 99% white, um, that's, mm. that's what it's about. Wow. Interesting. Well, that just changes the dynamic between you and I. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fine. Oh, I, got a Korean, I got a Korean friend in, in Australia who uh, was adopted by um, white people. And, uh, and <laughs> so after Trump won, he, he messaged me and said, uh, now that Trump won, please tell your nice friends to come for me last. I, I kind of precipitated this joke between us because um, when we were chatting one day, I said to him, 
you know, your sense of humor will serve you well when my friends knock on your door. Ah, uh-huh. you, know, <laughs> you know, I meant it as a joke, but no, I know you did. But that is the inherent natural dynamic. You know, we're all we can all be very tolerant, and then when the crap hits the fan, you know, suddenly like when times get tough, people revert to you know to solidarity with those who are genetically similar to them. And yeah. it's natural for you know for for a group to want to dominate its its locale. Now I'm American, but I'm saying this for the argument that so that people can hear it from the um, the minorities perspective, which is let's say we had a bunch of Mexicans coming into Korea, <laughs> and, exactly. and 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 let's and you know let's say we are at a point now where where there, there's 30% of Koreans Mexican. That's a lot. Let's say that, okay? How would how would Koreans feel? Or I'll give you an even, even more challenging example. What if 1% of Korea was Jewish? If 1% of Korea was Jewish, we would run your media. We would dominate your culture. We would fund much of your politics. We'd pull many if not most of the strings behind the scenes politically even though we were only one percent because you know koreans have an average iq of 105 but ashkenazi jews have an average yeah. iq of around 115 yep. and we may have even more ethnic solidarity and networking than, than koreans so how would koreans like a one percent you know population that's jewish but is in large part running the country well, yeah, man you guys are good at that shit <laughs> yeah, but it's very dangerous because obviously yeah. it's not in your interests. You know, That's and, right. Uh, this is the situation of, of the Weimar Republic. You know, Jews dominated the Weimar Republic, and uh, then there was the Holocaust. Like the last time there was this mu- much freedom for, for gays was the Weimar Republic right before the Holocaust. You know, this pr- provokes mm-hmm. a reaction. So you know, right now Jews have a dominant role in the, the United States of America. We fund about seventy five to 80% of the Democratic Party and about a quarter to a third of the Republican Party. Um, you know, obviously, America's support for Israel is not in America's interests. You know, it's gigantic you know, military support. You know, 9-11 would not have happened to the United States if it hadn't been so closely allied with Israel. So even though Jews are 1.7% of the population of the United States, they have an influence far in excess of that. And uh, it's 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 a dangerous thing because eventually you know the Goyim wake up to their own self interests and they may say yeah Jews are very smart but we've got the numbers and we've got the brute force and it would be unhealthy if they didn't act in their own self interest. I'll just add a, a final thing about the alt right. The alt right is also skeptical of, of America, of the United States of America, and the American system because I think looking at it now. Maybe there's a totally a straight line between the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and gay marriage and trannies in the bathroom. Like, if you make you know human freedom the number one goal, you know the, the, the horrible things that are going on in the United States of America now may be the inevitable result of that. And so, the alternative, say, ethno-nationalism, which puts as the the main goal the development of the race. So for Japan, it would be the development of Japanese to their you know, utmost capacity, or China, the development of Chinese to their utmost capacity, or European countries, the development of the European race to, to its utmost capacity. Mm. So I have become much more skeptical about America and Americanism because I, right now, I do see a straight line between the United States Constitution, you know, 1788, and gay marriage and trannies in the bathroom, which I think really? are an abomination, disgusting. And I won't try to give a, a rational reason for why it's, you know, this gender fluidity thing is disgusting, because if you don't inherently feel disgust at that, then I don't think there's any, you know, rational reason. I mean, there, there may be, but I'm not going to even bother to try to give you a rational reason. Like Transsexuals yeah. are 10 times more likely to commit suicide. I mean, the numbers are there for anybody who wants to fall through the implications of the studies. But I see what you're saying. They're not going to even look at the numbers. Well, it's tapping into, you know, what is 
biological, you know, what is natural. I think it's, you know, it's natural for, for people who are, who are straight. You know, I, let me say I appreciate your ability to talk about these shaky topics like we're talking about a basketball game. I know I, 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 I really appreciate that because I think I'm like you in that sense where there isn't really much that offends me. To me, the disagreement is very exciting because I like the analytical competition. I don't believe in agreeing to disagree. I think that simply means one person just has less facts and information on their side for the most part. And maybe it's because I'm in DC, but I don't meet enough right-wing conservative thinking. It's just always refreshing to simply talk to another person no matter there <laughs> about these topics. Yeah, it's always refreshing. We should do this again. Wonderful dialogue, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for your That's time. That's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.